0: Hey everyone, welcome back to the podcast. I am James Finch, this is The Finch Show, and I am here from my still-in-process-of-construction studio in Freeport, Illinois. Um, Glad to be back. Got another episode for you. Before I get into that, I got to talk about my sponsor, Black Star Woodcrafts, and if you haven't gone there, I don't know what you're doing. Because this guy is incredible. I know you kind of think to yourself, like, why do I need anything made out of wood? Like, what's the big deal? No. This is really, really high-quality stuff. And he makes a whole wide range of different products. Everything from these really nice, ornate, wooden-laid pens to bath caddies to bottle toppers for wine bottles. Uh, Gosh, you name it, this guy can do it. And you can check him out through various places. You can find him on Facebook. You can find him on Instagram. And he now has an Etsy shop open you can go there right now see what he has up on his marketplace and you can buy it right there if you don't want to just buy something he's already got pre-made he can do custom stuff he loves doing custom stuff he loves uh collaborating with uh, customers and talking about what it is they want what they want it to look like and he'll do all that for you you can go to facebook you can go to instagram look up black star woodcrafts and you can message him directly through there and begin that conversation begin that process i guarantee you will not be let down and as a listener to this podcast, if you mention the Finch Show, you will get 15% off your order. Not too shabby. So go, check it out. Don't waste any more time. Today's episode was um, it was a really, really good one. My guest was Dr. Christopher Ball, who is an assistant professor of augmented reality at the University of Illinois Champaign-Urbana. And so we had a conversation about virtual reality and about um, this new um, immersive technology that we're that's on the horizon and gaining more and more popularity and it's going to have a bigger and bigger impact on our lives. Um, It was a fun chat. It was a very informative chat. He was a great guest. I really, really enjoyed it. So without further ado, here is Dr. Christopher Ball. Okay, so I'm here. Um, I'm here with Dr. Christopher Ball. And this is like, one of those subjects like areas that you're into that I found incredibly difficult to do any research on to prepare for it ahead of time, because it's such a broad subject. And I didn't want to do research on it, come up with a bunch of questions that weren't directed specifically at what you do. Um, So when you're talking about immersive technology, what exactly does that all encompass?
1: Well, it's a, it's a still very rapidly developing field of study, uh, and that goes for all new and emerging media, and I consider myself an emerging media scholar, so that poses some interesting challenge, challenges for researchers because that's a moving target. It's what we mean by immersive technologies right now is going to be completely different from what we consider them 10 years from now. So immersive technologies in this current limelight are these technologies that make you feel immersed in a digital environment or a virtual environment to some extent or another. And usually we think of immersion as sort of shutting out external stimuli and making you feel this sense of presence immersion and presence are are kind of very similar constructs, but that idea that you feel there. So you feel there in that video game or you feel there in that 360 video or what have you. And these technologies really kind of help instill that feeling of presence by blocking out things like, okay, well, you've got a dog running around, you've got trucks moving outside, you've got all these sorts of sounds and sights that normally distract you when you might be watching television or reading a book but in something like VR, suddenly we have this ability to shut out a lot of that external stimuli, replace it solely with that artificial reality that we're trying to create. And that makes people feel more there than they ever have before, which makes these sort of new immersive technologies some of the most powerful medium we've ever developed because we have somebody's quite literally undivided attention. And so what are we gonna do with that? What kind of effects Does that undivided attention have? Does it make people learn better? Does it make people learn worse? What kinds of things are they learning? These are the kinds of questions that I like to address in particular, but there's so many different directions we can head with this new technology, and it's developing so quickly, and it's an incredibly exciting time to be studying something like this, but it's something that I make sure to tell my students. We have been looking at, for quite a while. It's it's big now, we have Oculus uh, hitting sales records and stuff like that, and that's wonderful. But there are really great scholars that have been working with this kind of technology for a very long time. Um, if we go over the history of these kinds of technologies, you can find patents for things that look incredibly similar to the Oculus Quest back in 1930 and stuff like that. So via science fiction and people that really were looking ahead of the curve, uh, we've been trying to do this for a really long time and we're closer than we ever have at sort of creating this artificial reality that we can use to tell stories, give people new experiences and all these kinds of things. And that's what one of the areas that I'm interested in researching in particular. Wow. That's, you know, I think about
0: that a lot um, in terms of uh, technology and new technologies as introduced into society and into culture and kind of the impact that it has. And I think to myself, um, if you were to bring somebody from the past and bring them to now, you know, we have accelerated so rapidly in our technology that it's like, if you were to take somebody from 10 years ago and bring them to now and show them what's going on, they kind of be like, oh, that's pretty cool take somebody from 50 years ago, and they'd kind of be like, oh, wow. Take someone from 100 years ago, and their mind would explode. Right, yeah. <laughs>
1: like, for sure, at, just at in the... my lifetime, it's been <laughs> right. incredible. And that's one of the things we're seeing is that the rate at speed we're developing these new technologies that have societal level implications is accelerating. So things are getting more complex, more innovative. And that, as we're, as we're seeing around the world, as we're seeing in our own lives, that poses its own set of challenges, too. Uh, There's a lot of benefits that come with this kind of stuff, but there's also a lot of challenges that come with it, too, as we try to figure out how does this technology fit into our lives? How does this technology fit into our, our culture or our society? And since that development trajectory is so much faster now, it's getting harder and harder for us to keep up. And that's where some of my other research involving, like, digital inequalities and things like that, sort of emerge, Uh, but 100%, a lot of the ideas behind the technology we have now are baked into our brains. But the way we are now sort of scratching those various social itches and whatnot have, have changed so dramatically in such a short period of time that we're always trying to figure out what are the effects on our psychology? What are the effects on our development by the time we start to figure that out, there's something new <laughs> right around the corner that changes everything again. Uh, like when I when I introduce the history of immersive technologies in particular to my students, I don't start with the High Lake VR headset patent in 1930. I start with the K paintings in France that are 17,000 years old. Because I think that we can say is the first virtual environment that we created. We've always tried to create this sort of environment where you can feel present in a story or or in a bit of our culture and painting those, you know, various animals on the wall and having that, because you have to imagine it back, you know, 17,000 years ago where you have these cave paintings, but you're not just walking into a cave with these bright lights that we have today. You have to imagine them lit by candlelight with the smell of that smoke and how the candlelight would play off the various topography of the walls and make the animals look like they're moving. And how you sitting in that environment to yourself, it would look like you're in this you know, very like stampede of animals and how that might make you feel 17,000 years ago, we're still trying to get at that feeling, making somebody feel there yeah. and connecting with each other in a different way and connecting with our cultures in different ways. And how do we translate those? How do we package them up and, and transmit them to somebody else? And VR is one way, but there's there's plenty of others, whether it's video games or books or movies or television. I think all of that is interesting and we are trying to understand all of it separately but there's also tons of overlap when we learn something about television over here that might help inform us when we're looking at vr over here and i try to keep a broad perspective on those kinds of things because you never know where the the key to that puzzle might lie in a field that you weren't paying attention to before Mm. but suddenly it's like oh now all this makes a little bit more sense. So I'm very interdisciplinary <laughs> in that regard. <laughs> I love talking to people from other disciplines because it's always like, I had no idea. I didn't think about it from that perspective at all. So the more eyes we have on these kinds of challenges and opportunities, the better in my opinion. Mm-hmm. I, gosh, that's kind of an interesting thread that you could draw throughout
0: time when you imagine um, a, a nine-year-old girl 17,000 years ago Slowly going to sleep in their cave with the the campfire illuminating and flickering on the side of the cave, and you know this little girl falling asleep watching these animals dance and run. Right. Versus today, for you know my nine-year-old daughter is falling asleep in her bed with her TV on, you
1: yeah. know, and the flickering right.
0: images of Minecraft or Roblox or whatever it is right. she's into now. I don't know, but that's uh-huh. re- that's really bizarre. I was trying to explain because my daughter is a huge gamer, and. um I was showing her this past weekend this painting. They used to do this thing back, I would say, the late 1800s, where they would do these um, what were called cycloramas. Of course, we're talking about post-American Civil War period. And I don't know if you've ever seen these before, but they would make these massive uh, Mm -hmm. oil-on-canvas paintings that were 360 degrees, and it was a dome structure with a raised platform in the middle, so you could stand on it and feel like at that time – looking 360 view like you were in the middle of the battle you were in the middle of right. the scene that was happening and i was showing this to my daughter and i was trying to explain to her that you know 150 years ago this was the closest to vr that they had like this was the, the whole idea that you would pay a ticket you would go inside and you could stand up there and look around and get the feel of what it supposedly would it felt like to be in the middle of that
1: mm-hmm. and I, I actually have a slide in my history slide deck that's tracing that exact through point in terms okay. of uh, how we tried to tap at that same sort of goal of immersing, immersing, immersion and taking somebody there, whether it's to a battlefield or to a city, we can see similar sorts of paintings uh, in, in Roman society too, where we, we've been trying to do this kind of thing for a really long time because we have this sort of innate desire to connect with one another, to share our perspective or our experience with other people and what's more powerful than literally putting somebody in your shoes and letting them whether it's a singular perspective in a 360 degree painting or whether it's a more interactive experience that you might be able to have now with something like VR. We've always been trying to do this and we keep getting better and better and I tell people when I say immersive technologies today emerging technologies today and we talk about these cool affordances we're going to keep getting better at this. <laughs> so, <laughs> so what's next? And we close out a lot of my semesters when I teach these various topics. We usually close out talking about science fiction because that's oftentimes one of the best indicators we have of where this tech is going. When I grew up, the a lot of the technology on Star Trek was science fiction and now I have that in my pocket. So, we can, we can actually learn quite a bit by looking to our various sci-fi visionaries because whether they have the idea first, somebody at NASA is going to be like, that's a pretty good idea. I'm going to try to pull <laughs> that off. And then next thing you know, we've got it at home. So um, if you're going to be interested in emerging tech, if you're going to try to mer- use that in your various career or field, keep an eye ahead and, and try to prepare for what's next. You might be wrong. could be right but regardless it gives you that sort of perspective that this is a rapidly changing playing field and one of the problems that people have is when they get stuck when they stop learning about the new tech and they get left behind and society starts to adopt that tech very quickly and then suddenly it's harder for people like older adults to to you know spec- especially with things like COVID-19 to access things like healthcare and social support all these things because they were digitized and they had been digitizing for a while and then suddenly COVID rapidly accelerates that digitization process and now If you don't know how to use these technologies effectively, you're at a substantial disadvantage. So keep an eye out because right now, you don't have to have VR to make it through COVID-19. It will help based on a lot of what we're seeing. It would help, you don't have to have it. But who knows, 10 years from now, something like that, maybe you would need some sort of VR equivalent to fully integrate with society or your job or what have you. Uh, So it's a moving target, which makes research difficult but i think it's exciting it's i think of it as an opportunity but there are times where i have written a paper and before it's even out for review that whole field has changed and it's like oh great this is now dated even though it's only a year old right trends and technology or trends and games like microtransactions i was writing a paper on micro microtransactions and by the time i sent it out for review that landscape had had Change dramatically. It's like, well, that's kind of frustrating, but we'll see what happens. Yeah, we're like hurtling through, and it's so. I, I
0: always find it fascinating um, trying to predict the future, you know, of technology, because it, I think typically you can be pretty close to being right on the next couple steps. Um, yeah. Gosh, I back in the '80s, we all thought we were going to have flying cars by now. You know, we can, we can be very wrong. (laughs) (laughs) Right. But on the flip side, you know, if you watch like I always think to myself, like watching, um, you know, back to the future part two, where there were flying cars and all of a sudden, yeah, we don't have that, but the technology that we have in terms of communication information is a light years ahead of what they predicted it was going to be. Right. So it's like, we definitely advanced. We just took a different avenue than what was predicted. And I remember, uh, gosh, I remember the the name of the book. When I was in college, I read this book, It was a novel that was written in 1898 and it was supposed to take place. I want to say in 2005 Mm -hmm. and this guy who wrote this book in 1898, one of the technological predictions that he had is that in every town there would be this giant hall with all these different chambers of different orchestras playing different kinds of music. And Uh there would be tubes running to each individual house. So depending (laughs) upon what kind of music you wanted to listen to, you would open that tube and that music would live come through into your house. And I'm like looking at Pandora, like, uh-huh. Um, I'd have been wrong on that one, but that's why I think it's so hard to predict because you don't know what you don't know. Like there's nobody, there's no way anybody in 1898 writing a book could have predicted the internet um, right. being able to record to begin with, you know, digital right. transfer, electricity, you know, in a lot of cases.
1: And, and that's, that, you bring up some really interesting points there. When, when we try to conceptualize technology, technology itself. The word we're using, I mean, we, sometimes we have to break this down linguistically, the word we're using is complicated when we say technology, because if we trace that back historically, normally when we think of ologies, we think of studying something, biology and all these kinds of things, we're studying living organisms, it's the study of something. So why isn't technology the study of the mechanical arts? Well, it used to be, but we started to see that these technologies were impacting us in so many ways that our language couldn't quite keep up with how important this thing was. So we started to use the term technology to refer to the mechanical arts more broadly, but also various aspects of it. We can talk about the car, for example. The car is a technology. That's changed our society society dramatically, the world dramatically. Did the car do that? Or did all the things around the car do that? The conveyor belts with the assembly lines and the the road infrastructures, the the new uh, sorts of careers that spawned out of that. All these kinds of things that made it so we could live further away from cities. All these kinds of things came out of that singular invention. But we can't say it was the car that did it. It's all of that stuff. So we started using the term technology much more broadly. But we kind of have a hard time thinking about what would have happened if we didn't develop the car. So in the same way that we have a hard time predicting the future, what about alternate presence? Well, we didn't, there was no car. Well, would we all be living in cities with no means of rapid transportation? Unlikely. We probably would have developed something else or one of the other inventions that was around the same time probably would have developed faster. And one of the things you brought up is actually one of the alternatives. It's one of my favorite alternatives to bring up in classes, the pneumatic tube. Okay, we have email. What if we didn't have email? What if we didn't have the internet? Maybe we would have an elaborate system of pneumatic tubes that suck people around Futurama style to various places. Another technology might have stepped in to fill that same sort of need. And we won't know. We couldn't know. That's, that's all, you know, just just thinking out loud. But maybe that would happen. Maybe all the technologies we have are one possible way we developed a particular technology that then maybe consumed or consumed a bunch of other technologies that would have maybe developed totally differently and been just fine. Would have had the same sort of end goal of communicating and connecting with one another in a totally different way from from how we conceive of it now. Uh, So it's not just the future. There could have been very very diverse ways we could have approached these same problems. communicating in this case, or listening to music in that case. We have Spotify and all that. What if we didn't? What what would we have done? Maybe rooms connected by tubes that we would have listened to. Maybe that would have been the more reasonable outcome. But we kind of determine that culturally, socially, uh, developmentally. We as a as a species, we determine those kinds of paths that we take. And sometimes we're going to have to take a step back and we're going to have to revise and 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 think about approaching things from a different way because we run into challenges or whatnot. I mean, VR is a good example. There's been a lot of false starts in the VR revolution. Everybody's always talking about. I want that revolution desperately, but I've lived through a number of them. <laughs> so it's like, is this going to be the one? Maybe, maybe not. Maybe it's still 10 years out, but I don't think it, I think we're closer than we ever have been, but Hmm, maybe something better will come along. Uh, that's what I always tell people. Like the cell phone, for example, I have a better camera here than I'm using to talk to you right now. I have a GoPro, but this camera is better than that too. The phone <laughs> is one of those technologies that's like it does so many different things. So many different technologies all in one little nice, neat package. And maybe VR will be one of those technologies that gets consumed into something else. Mm-hmm. we don't quite know yet but we have to learn as much as we can now so that we can try to predict where that's going so that we can try to what i always say is maximize the benefits minimize the negatives as much as possible and that's what a lot of people like myself are, are trying to do when we're trying to not just look at what's happening now but look a couple steps ahead so we can try to get prepared for whatever's coming mm-hmm.
0: gosh that's really great and i was I was thinking about that cuz uh, just uh, just here for Christmas I got my wife an Oculus Quest 2 for you know as a gift and that's kind of become the family's new thing you know which is really really great when you have children like oh you want to VR tonight your room better be clean you know <laughs> it's become <laughs> it's really effective <laughs> yeah it's been, yeah it's been really really great for that um, and I began thinking to myself um, being 41 years old like I remember being like 9 10 years old when we got our first VCR And what a big deal that was to get a VCR. When VCRs first came out, they weren't, you know, super expensive, but they were a little bit on the pricey side. It wasn't those things where you were just, I'll just go grab one quick. Um, And now you you look back on, of course, VCR is obsolete technology now. But I I think to myself, gosh, is it going to be, you know, with my daughter being nine years old, this is going to be one of those things where she's going to be telling her kids, "Yeah, we were nine years old when we got our first VR. Really, you had to live that long before you had your first VR? Yeah, yeah, not until I was nine. Gosh, I was practically born in
1: one." You know? <laughs> yeah, yeah, and that's one of the things that I think blows me away as a as a parent, but also as just a gamer in general. Is I think like, okay, well, I grew up and fell in love with gaming on atari and nintendo and things like that and that was my baseline so it's e- it's very easy to impress me <laughs> like like when i see like ps5 games i'm like well, this looks amazing because i started with 8-bit yeah but then i think about my son who's four and it's like his baseline is oculus quest (laughs) it's like where do you go from there just in a short time period like what kinds of graphics what kinds of experiences are he is he gonna have in in, 30 years or whatever it's i love thinking about that i love thinking about you know him looking back at like oculus quest as being old old vcr tech that you would find in like an old thrift store somewhere Uh, I love that because that means something so much better is probably on the market now that, that is now taking up everybody's time, but uh, it's, it's a, it's a great motivating tool. A lot of people are finding that in terms of things like exercise during the pandemic, like it's a motivator, like people don't like to exercise, but what if you're playing Oculus Quest, you're playing a game and exercising simultaneously, suddenly it's not quite so bad anymore. So we've got a lot of different things we can, we can figure out that we want to do with that. But it will, it will be obsolete,
0: and yeah. and
1: uh, they will be sharing stories. Because my my father had like the Betamax. Oh uh, yes. Not just the VCR, the Betamax, and he loves it. He still has one that works. And I was like, wasn't there like an episode of Cowboy Bebop where they were looking for like a Betamax player? <laughs> yeah. Like this was like ancient artifact technology, and he still yeah. has still works. So if you make good tech, it will last.
0: <laughs> wish I wish I still had that. When I was a kid, we had our main TV, and then my dad had this little. Tiny TV in the basement in his work area that had a Betamax and only had a few tapes for it. I remember he had Dune, Top Gun, oh. Howard the Duck, and
1: Empire Strikes Back. So all the classics. Yeah. <laughs> like, so if I wanted to watch TV. movies, <laughs> yeah. Those are the ones to pick. I it, like how it, the duck is on there. <laughs> yeah. If my
0: parents were watching TV and I didn't want to watch what they were doing, my only other option was to go to the basement and pick one of those four. Uh-huh. <laughs> so I saw Empire Strikes Back he, a lot. As a kid. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> what well, um so you, you had some good ones to pick <laughs> yeah you know and it, it's funny like i even just like what you were saying about being blown away i remember like when the super nintendo came out and playing like super mario brothers and f-zero and being like oh my god look at these graphics yep and yep. now it's like cyberpunk comes out and if it has any glitches or you know the uh graphics <laughs> aren't like quite up to current par then it's considered a <laughs> Yeah, if you'd have shown me that when I was a kid, my mind
1: would have exploded. Like, oh, for sure. Know? <laughs> for sure. Like, I remember that every single time. Every single time a new generation of consoles came out, I was blown away. And it's like that that is a steady progression that we've seen over and over and over again. We make these big leaps. One of the ways I used to mark that change when I was growing up was like the CGI. Of one generation becomes the in-game graphics of the next. So mm. Final Fantasy 7's cutscenes looked amazing and then you got to the actual game and it's like oh it doesn't look nearly as cool. But then you look to PS2 and suddenly that's what the games look like and again and again and again we kind of raised that visual fidelity bar fairly substantially. And so I always, I always love those new generations and came to see those big leaps forward because graphics are in essence a better representation of the artists like the artist is trying to represent this this world whether it's cyberpunk's world or what have you and the better our graphics get the closer we can get to their vision in essence cyberpunk's also an interesting example in the context of this conversation because it's set in 2020 i believe (laughs) it's like some of the flashbacks are in 2020 when and like yeah the game's in 2077 but it has flashbacks so it's like 2020 was supposed to be a lot more futuristic <laughs> than what we have. Again, we missed the mark a little bit, but right about enough. Uh, so we will we if uh, kind of like a shotgun method. Let's predict a whole bunch of things, and maybe one or two we get right, and that's enough. Like mm-hmm. in your Back to the Future example, like augmented reality. We're not there yet, but we're getting close to like the augmented reality advertisement where the shark comes down and mm-hmm. and chomps them like. Yeah, we're not quite there, but that technology's there. It's it's just getting consumer ready, but we can do that if you have the right glasses. But soon, maybe you won't need the right glasses. Maybe we can project a giant shark for the Jaws, a new Jaws reboot or something, in the absolute <laughs> distance. You know, they might end up being right. They might just have been off on the date a little bit.
0: <laughs> so if. Um... It, let, let's say VR ends up kind of like sort of like the Oculus Quest 2 thing. Let's say that sort of ends up like a real widespread thing, you know, almost mm-hmm. like the cell phone, like every household has one or has multiple sets of it. Um, what do you see as that sort of, do you have any thoughts on that in terms of the kind of social or sociological impact
1: that'll have? Oh, for sure. That's uh, my, my my training is in sociology. So that's kind of how I I started, was looking at things sociologically. For my PhD, I eventually went into media and information. And the reason why I jumped fields is primarily because I was interested in looking at digital society and digital uh, communication and human interaction. And VR, if taken to one of its various possible conclusions, becomes this really powerful medium for connectivity. And what I say, when we look at like digital inequality scholarship or technology adoption scholarship, we see these technologies come out, usually they're very expensive. They're new. Betamax, when it came out, was exorbitantly expensive. One of the reasons why I didn't make it. So this new technology comes out, eventually it becomes more commonplace as the price drops. High def definitions, televisions are probably the best example of that now. But with VR, we can see that too. Uh, Jeremy Balenson is one of the biggest names in immersive technology scholarship. He built his lab, the Virtual Human Interaction Lab in 2003 thereabouts with VR equipment. So well before Oculus came on the scene in, in 2012. His VR setup in that lab was $30,000. That Oculus Quest 2 you just bought for 300 is better than what he had back in 2003 for $30,000. That's a fairly substantial price drop and a fairly short period of time, and it's picking up. We're seeing the Oculus Quest 2 is $100 cheaper than the first Oculus Quest, that was just a year ago. And that's because Facebook has really sort of started to plow this particular path forward in VR that's going to be VR essentially for the masses, right? More people that have VR, the more people are buying VR apps, Facebook makes more money. But I think the real reason for that push is If VR is really going to have the longevity that we hope it's going to have, it's going to have to be social. And that's really what we have to crack in terms of of VR and some of the challenges of VR is, as you've probably seen when you're playing VR with your family, is when you put on the headsets, it can be socially isolating. Suddenly you can't see the people around you. It's harder to communicate because you have beat saber blasting in your ear or whatever. It kind of takes you out of the group and that can be fun, you can get around it, but in general, people don't wanna do that. So can we make VR more social in terms of the people that are around us, but also can we connect with people that are across the country? Uh, like, like I said earlier before we started recording, I'm originally from Augusta, Georgia. That means a lot of my family's still in Georgia. I don't get to see them very much, particularly now during the pandemic, but my brother got an Oculus Quest 2 over Christmas and the first thing we did, was hop into like you know big screen VR where we could watch an episode of television together. That was the first thing we did. That's what I wanted to do more than anything was sit on a virtual couch with my brother and do what we used to do, which is watch a movie or watch TV or something like that. That's huge. And that's what I think Facebook needs to do. And that's what I think they're working towards. They're working on something called uh, Facebook Horizons, which is supposed to be their social push in VR. I think they'd realize, I've seen some some quotes from people at Facebook, they realized they weren't ready for the pandemic in terms of, VR could have been a lot more helpful than it was for people in keeping people connected. But that sort of structure, that social structure just wasn't in place yet. I think they were always planning on building that up, it just wasn't quite there. So some industries were able to capitalize very quickly on VR, Uh, one interesting one is the real estate industry. They were able to capitalize on VR and COVID immediately because we had virtual tours of houses where you could just take a 360 degree omnidirectional camera, maybe a LiDAR scanner, take it into a house, scan the house, and now suddenly somebody can come take a tour through the house virtually. Really great. We saw sales of like virtual tour software skyrocket. They were able to capitalize. Unfortunately, while Facebook is definitely reaping some benefits in terms of sales. The Oculus Quest 2 outsold the first Oculus Quest within seven weeks. So it's selling just fine. And it's sold out since the end of 2019 and has been tricky to find ever since. So they're not hurting by any means. But I think if we're going to make sure that everybody wants to be a part of this sort of VR revolution, one of the really important things is getting at that social dynamic. What does social connection look like in VR, in three-dimensional space? Is it sitting on a virtual couch watching a movie or is it being in the movie because it's a 360 movie? How how do we connect uh, in very minute details matter a lot? We're talking on a, on a Zoom feed right now. You have a number of signals that I'm giving off. I'm just speculating with my hands. I'm terrible at that. I just speculate a lot. But you're also getting my facial expressions. You're, you're getting my eyebrows, you're getting all that kinds of stuff. And that's what we sort of call media richness or the affordances of Zoom allows you to see me, you gain a lot more information about me, how I'm communicating with you via all those signals. How do we recreate those in VR? Because right now a lot of them get lost. You're an avatar that's usually a, a head that might look something like you. Uh, you might have a body that looks something like your body. But what about my hands? We now, I said presence before. There's also studies looking at hand presence. We know that if you can see your hands, if you can reach out and touch something in VR, it makes you feel much more there than otherwise. So when we're talking, are you gonna be able to just speculate with your hands? Are we gonna be able to track facial expressions, eye contact? These kinds of things can be really important for making sure that it's not just One avatar talking to another avatar in a cool space station environment. That's cool. But that's not going to get grandma on board. And I always say, if we really want VR to take off, it's not me. You don't have to sell it to me. I'm going to buy it anyways. (laughs) You don't have to sell it to my brother. He's going to buy it anyways. What you need to do is sell it to my parents. If you can get my parents on board, then we're really cooking with gas here. And are they going to want to talk to static avatars that vaguely look like them? My parents have no interest in that. But Facebook's also working on facial capture technology that can sort of really accurately, creepily accurately (laughs) sort of recreate all of your facial expressions. And so if you have a avatar that looks identical to you, one-to-one captures those eye gaze and eyebrows and the whole nine yards, now we're getting some. Now we can have a virtual dinner together or, or what have you and, and really just hang out. And I think once we get to that point, is when we're gonna see VR make the jump from sort of hobbyists, uh, gamer community that it's, it's mainly in now to something that might be commonplace at everybody's house. Because if you can crack that social component, you open the door to so many different elements, then working in VR becomes a lot more practical. Going to school in VR becomes a lot more practical because communication is the bedrock of all of those things. And if we can crack communication in VR, then it really opens up the doors of possibility because I think working in VR has a lot of potential. Learning in VR, of course, studies have shown tons of potential, but doing it together I think is the key To making it a widespread commonplace technology. Do we get there? I think so. I think Facebook's doing tremendous work on the technology, technological side, but also on that social side. I think we will get very close to that very soon. Whether it happens soon enough that when we think of this as VR technology, do we think of this as cell phones (laughs) in the future just have that component built into them? Uh, how far down the road do you want to predict it might get consumed into something else but that's what a lot of scholars are looking at right now is what does social interaction in a virtual space look like and what will it look like right now it's social media you're posting 140 characters stuff like that we're communicating that way but soon i might be like well, let's, let's let's record another podcast and you can come over to my virtual house and we can hang out and, or I could go to your virtual studio and we could have all those signals and we could feel like we're in the same place. And then we get that social presence in addition to that spatial presence of being in your studio. Not only am I in the studio, but I'm in the studio with you. Mm-hmm. And that opens up a lot of doors for us in terms of the experiences we want to create and also the kinds of things we can do in VR. Because collaboration is, is what I'm really excited for in the future. Being able to be like, oh, look at this cool thing and bring you into my virtual office and show you this cool thing is, is what I'm really looking forward to.
0: That would be, gosh, that'd be amazing. And I sort of feel like, um, and I think a lot of people are um, obvious. And I, I'm gonna go out on a limb and assume that you've seen the movie Ready Player One. I'm just oh, yeah. gonna- That's the
1: best <laughs> advertisement for my research. I assigned it to my students day one. I was like, well, we're all going to the theater now. <laughs> yeah. Well, I, you know, for a long time, I
0: thought, yeah, I could, you know, I'd think to myself, yeah, I could see the, like, you know, VR being the future and kind of maybe where gaming is heading, but I guess didn't really put a lot of thought into it. And then that movie came out. and I just went, oh my God. Like, can you imagine? Like, that would be like the total, like, um, I guess, 360 experience. And I don't mean just like visually, but I mean everything.
1: like i think i think
0: yeah 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 because i think to myself like playing um i recently finished assassin's creed valhalla i'm a big fan of that franchise Uh and i'm thinking to myself god imagine what it'd be like in a ready player one sort of like ioi type of environment where you can like feel the snow crunching beneath your boots and smell the campfire and the cold breeze going across your face and Right. I, you know, some of those things I think like, man, I don't know if I'd come out. <laughs> you know, you just kind of get lost in there and just,
1: you know. Right. Yeah. And that's and that's an interesting point out of itself where, uh, and that goes back to like early video game and even television research, where usually when these new technologies come out, we see a sort of flow and ebb to the shape of research. Usually the first spike in research is, how is this going to destroy the world? Like, how is, this, how is this technology going to ruin everything? Right. We always see that spike. Video games cause all the shootings. Television causes people to no longer interact with one another. There's always a spike of, of negative research. And I'm not one of those scholars. I'm usually looking on the optimistic side of that equation. I think we still need to go through that cycle because we do need to be wary of, of where we might misstep with those technologies. And one of the things that was always interesting to me looking at like early video game research was that kind of idea of, well, people are getting addicted to these games and there's video game addiction now on the dsm four and all these kinds of things. And it's like, okay, there's a few problems with that that we, could, we can go into, but let's look at it sociologically for a second. What we really need to be worried about is what's wrong with the real world that people would wanna spend all of their time in a virtual world. We can make a virtual world very interesting, very engaging, very fun, flow state, all these great things we can put in the games and by virtue of that virtual reality, and maybe we can make a game like ACVR that's so fun you never want to leave. But I think that says more about where you're leaving than where you're going. What's wrong here that people would want to escape there? And I think that's one of the things that Ready Player One actually kind of gets at to a pretty effective degree. They're all just living on... Cargo containers and, and uh, Winnebago's and stuff that are just sort of strapped together. It's like the reality isn't great. Right, and that's right. why everybody's spending all their time in the virtual reality. Mm-hmm. So that's usually my take sociologically on that kind of worry where it's like, okay, well, let's make sure the real world is still good enough that you'd want to come out of Assassin's Creed VR. Uh, and I get it. We design games enthrall people for long periods of time. We have a lot of little psychological tricks here or there, but we're trying to make the game as engaging as possible because the more time you spend on it, the more you feel like you got your money's worth, the more likely you are to buy microtransactions, all these kinds of things. We want to dominate your attention and that can pose what I would call some ethical dilemmas for designers. Uh, do we really want to tap into addictive personality tropes and all these kinds of things. Probably not. We need to stay clear of that kind of thing. But in general, you do want the game to be fun. You want people to want to play it. But maybe not to the point (laughs) where you're going to ignore your job or ignore your family. And that's when it becomes problematic gaming, as I would more aptly call it. But I always say, it's not the game necessarily that we need to be looking at. If somebody has a problematic gaming problem, it probably isn't the game. That's led them to that point. It's probably something else, whether sociologically or psychologically, that has led them to the point where World of Warcraft is better than this. So I'm just gonna play it all day, every day. <laughs> like let's fix that problem. And then nice. maybe we won't have to worry about it so much.
0: And I always kind of felt that way too when it comes to you know a situation like that, like video game addiction. Like the 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 video game addiction isn't the problem. That's just the avenue, that's just the solution that person is right. having right there. There's nobody who's you know, a fit who's happy and has a really great life. And then the next day they're addicted to video games and never come out and their life falls apart. It's typically right. a, and you're absolutely right. Like I think even if, even if we were on a, you know, technologically wise, we were on a ready player one type level right now that how much time you were going to spend in there. Like, yeah, if you lived in Columbus and the stacks, you'd probably spend a lot of time in there. If you had a $2 million house on the beach in Hawaii, you'd probably spend less time in there. So, yeah, yeah, that's that's good. I think you nailed that right on the head. Um, one of the things that my wife actually brought this up, we were discussing this podcast this morning, my wife's a coder. Oh, cool. And she, um, she really, this, as much as it's been bad, the whole pandemic thing has been really, really great for her because now she just gets to, sit in her own little office and shut the door and just code to her heart's content and not be bothered. But right. And, right. Uh, the team that she's on, she's on a three-person team and they all have Oculus headsets. So several times they've had meetings that way where they put the headsets oh, on and you know, been able to sit and do that. And that's really, really neat. Um, one of the things that my wife brought up and I, this really got my brain thinking um, is that one of the situations we deal with right now in social media is the sort, of, you know, sort of level of anonymity where somebody can create a fake username and all that kind of stuff and they can go on the internet and say some of the meanest, most horrible things in the world, let their inner demons just run wild
1: mm-hmm.
0: because there's no consequences to it. They're a nameless, faceless person in the void who can never be tracked down or never find. Nobody can knock on their door and say, hey, did you say this? Um, right. But is the, do you think there's any level for shift in that if everything becomes realistic virtual reality, even if like the avatar that's representing them doesn't look like that. There's still that psychological impact of talking to someone's face and seeing their facial expressions and the way they move in reaction to your words.
1: Right. Yeah, And and I would think based on the research we've had so far, not just in terms of social presence research and VR research, but also in the avatar research and things like that, that people tend to connect with their avatar. Uh, Whether that avatar looks like them or not might influence some various levels of connectivity, but in general, we tend to connect with our avatar. It represents us in essence. Uh, Where we draw the line on avatar is always something I think is a fun kind of intellectual exercise. Normally when we talk about avatars, we think of Ready Player One style, or we think of of video games like Assassin's Creed or what have you, where you're sort of piloting a character in a virtual space. Normally how we conceptualize it. But in, in reality, an avatar is just a representation of you in a digital environment to some extent or another. So we could also say your Facebook profile picture is a representation of you, your Twitter picture is a representation of you, what have you. Some would even say our bodies, are representations of us as well. They're representations of our DNA and what have you. So we're used to cognitively connecting with representations of ourselves. And so we would think, depending on how that avatar looks might influence behavior in those kinds of situations. So somebody could create a troll avatar, something that they're designing to incite people and that might just become a part of that sort of online uh, fake identity just to stir up trouble there's always going to be people that that want to push the boundaries of normalcy in these kinds of environments whether it's gaming or social media or eventually vr we're going to have people testing our boundaries so i don't think that that's going to necessarily go away when there's maybe more accountability because you're represented in three-dimensional space But where we do start to get into some interesting moral, ethical, uh, developmental quandaries about VR is seen in the Quest 2, which is the first VR headset to require you to have a Facebook account, which you then log into to participate in that virtual community. So that's sort of the first hard line we've seen drawn in the sand, where it's like your virtual activity, your virtual self will be connected in theory to your real virtual profile and your real self. And so will that lead to more accountability? Probably, whether or not that might also make it so certain people don't wanna join. A lot of people were angry about that Facebook integration, but I see what they were doing. Mm -hmm. They're doing a lot in terms of trying to unify the, the Facebook platform across different technologies, trying to bring more people into the fold. I know a lot of people created a Facebook account just to try out the Oculus Quest 2. So in that regard, it's working. But I also suspect that a part of the reason why they're instituting that is so they can start creating a sense of accountability. And that might not be Facebook saying, you're bad, you can't do that. That's probably not what it is. What they're trying to tap into is social accountability that we already have. And I think Facebook's marketplace is a good example of that, where it's kind of like the Wild West compared to something like eBay, which has a lot of rules and regs and all these kinds of things. Facebook marketplace doesn't have nearly as much protections as we would get from those kinds of things, but that's, it still works. And the reason why it works is because I know who you are, (laughs) you know who I am and the social contract is, we're not going to steal from each other. (laughs) You're not Mm going to rob me and as long as that social contract is maintained then we can have transactions on facebook marketplace and and get along swimmingly Mm -hmm. i think we can kind of take that same ideal and apply it to vr where you know who i am i know who you are we're not trying to enter into this agreement or this environment this social interaction in an antagonistic way where in general people want to get along online it's very easy to forget that you're talking to a person on the other side of that screen. And yes, they might disagree with you, but they might have valid personal reasons for disagreeing with you before we would talk that out. But now it's really easy to escalate that into name calling and all these kinds of things and go right to your Hitler. And it's like all those kinds of things. And it's like, okay, well now we're no longer having that dialogue. And maybe we can have that dialogue in VR and a little bit more of a, empathetic way, I think. Because one of the things that's foundational to democracy is our ability to have shared experiences, to come across other people with different ideas and be able to see things from other people's perspective, perspective perspective-taking. All essential for us to work together. All government is, is this sort of idea that we're going to do stuff together. Whether that's roads or schools or or hospitals. It's we decided as a people that we wanted to have a certain standard of of living certain safeguards put into our society and we were going to do that stuff together. So we need to work together to do that kind of stuff and the way we work together is we like each other, we know each other, we might disagree, but we know that we still wanna get that stuff done. I still wanna protect you, you wanna protect me, we wanna make sure that you're happy, you wanna make sure I'm happy, we have this kind of understanding. We've seen that break down a lot in a very short period of time. People no longer have the, the same ability to take someone else's perspective, to walk a mile in their shoes, for example. That's problematic. But that's something that VR is incredibly primed to address. Some have referred to VR as the empathy machine because it's easier to walk a mile in somebody else's shoes in VR than ever before. Some people say that uh, Gutenberg and the printing press, this was one of the first major communication technologies that gave us the ability to see something from somebody else's perspective because you read somebody's story. This is the story of my life and you could experience it via that text, and by the end of that text, maybe you know why that person did X, Y, and Z, or they feel about this way or that way, and you could understand better where they're coming from. And through that understanding, you all can figure out, here's where we overlap. Here's where we agree. Let's work together on where we agree rather than focusing on where we disagree. And so we can kind of see humans gaining these technologies that allow us to take on other people's perspectives in different ways, in VR, gives us that ability in a way we've never had before. So what I'm hoping is that, yes, there's maybe more accountability online. We don't know, it could still develop in a couple of different ways. Maybe somebody is more kind when they realize they're talking to an actual person, and maybe that helps, but you're still gonna have your trolls. But ultimately, what I really hope is that VR becomes an avenue for us to understand our fellow American or our fellow human on a different level because now maybe whether it's 360 video or a full-fledged VR experience if we can just package up a day in the life of somebody and you get to see what they're going through maybe that's enough for you to be like okay there's more in common than not you care about your kids you want your kids to do well you want them to do better than you did you want to have a house a roof over your head three square meals those kinds of similarities that we have Let's work together on those rather than focusing on on all this other stuff. Uh, one of the examples I used to assign in one of my sociology courses I used to teach was a, a show called 30 Days. I don't know if you've heard of it, mm-hmm. but it's, it's a show produced by that guy that did Supersize Me, that documentary, okay. Morgan Spurlock. And he did a show where he just lived the 30 days like somebody else. And I thought it was one of the best sociological examples of this kind of thing where he would try to live 30 days on minimum wage. You can't go through that and not leave with a much better understanding of how people get trapped in poverty. You're working as hard as you can, two jobs. Pop tire, it's all over. It's all it takes, one pop tire. 46% of Americans or something can't handle uh, a bill like a pop tire. So it's like, no matter how, you're working hard. You're trying to get to that American dream really hard. But no matter how hard you work, it's not gonna be enough and on the outside we have people like well you're just not working hard enough it's not that (laughs) people are working really hard millennials don't have houses millennials aren't having kids it's not because they don't want that stuff it's because they've inherited an economy where that stuff is just not feasible they're crippled with student loan debt and these kinds of things they want the same american dream that previous generations wanted but the means of accessing it are much more slim so it's easy to say, work harder, pull yourself up by your bootstraps. But if you live a day or 30 days or whatever, and really see those tough decisions that people have to make when they choose between food and and heat, those kinds of decisions and see that they worked 80 hours and they're still having to choose between food and heat, then maybe you'd be a little bit more empathetic. Maybe something like raising the minimum wage wouldn't be quite so controversial. That's what uh, we're really trying to or at least I'm trying to do with some of my research, but Baylinson's doing with some of his research is trying to really tap into that empathetic component of VR.
0: Well, I think you really nailed nailed it on the head there. That's, um, gosh, that's such an interesting concept. We have this, I, I, and I'm not a psychologist or anything. This is just my own idiot ramblings, but I sort of feel like um, as humans, we have this tendency to want to categorize compartmentalize and disregard. You know, and when you are, especially now on the days of social media, and you know, a lot of cases, this is Facebook, where you're not necessarily on your page, but, you know, it's like a public, like a news article or something like that. And somebody makes some comment about something that, A, okay, it's probably a really dumb comment. And then their profile picture is some dude without a shirt chugging a beer on a beach. Okay. On those two very limited pieces of information, you develop this whole persona of who this person is, this yeah. dumb idiot. You know, um, whereas I feel like if you were standing there actually having the conversation with a person in a coffee house or even in line at the supermarket or something, you know, you could have a very different conversation, a very different understanding of who they are. And I think, gosh, that's I, I think that's actually profound because it's one thing for somebody to say, you know what, I went to college and I got a degree and I got a job doing this. And, you know, if I was able to do it, then everybody else should be able to do it. Okay, well, you know, you can't just take a couple million people and tell them to just get better jobs tomorrow. Like that's not going yeah. to happen. You but yeah, I think you're absolutely right. And I think that'd be really, really interesting, especially if it gets integrated into sort of like education in the school system where part of your homework is, is you have to spend X amount of time in VR living as this type of person in this type of environment. Maybe then it's not so easy for you to just compartmentalize it and disregard it and chuck it out the window and be like, well, those people over there just suck and that's all there is to it and they just need to more gumption and you know get after yeah. it that that'll be really interesting long-term impact how that plays out
1: sure like what what is what does it look like to be a citizen of the country or the world in modern times with modern technology it's going to look a little bit different but those cores are still there and that's what are we gonna what how can we help each other make our lives collectively a little bit better and being able to and it's it's a part of how our brains operate uh, if we look at the psychology or the sociology of, of a society in essence we have very high tech top of the line primate brains <laughs> mm-hmm. it's primate brains so we can look at how primates operate we can learn a lot from primates and how their little societies work and we can see what translates what what kind of Things are at the core of why we act the way we act. Primates have small societies. They do things with one another to increase the bonds amongst one another. One's grooming. So you see a lot of pictures where monkeys are picking bugs off of each other's backs. That's a social cohesion tactic. If I'm grooming you, if I get in a fight later, you're gonna help me out. Mm -hmm. That's easy for us to understand. We have similar stuff, it's just a little bit more advanced. For us, it's things like sharing gossip. Like, ooh, you're not gonna believe what happened with so-and-so, ooh, tell me, now we have a social pact that we're we're getting closer and closer, that's why on Survivor you see people making those little alliances, they're sharing information, that's how we create bonds with one another for our society to function. You like me, I like you, I can fix your car, you can fix my computer, we're gonna get along just fine. We create those sorts of organic or mechanical bonds with one another so that we can all function together. But We've seen limits to the size of primate communities. They're not huge. They don't have cities. It's little tight knit groups. And that's because we see at a certain point, there's sort of a drop off in the benefits you're gaining from the size of your group and your brain's ability to process the size of that group. Some people did some calculations and they were like, well, what's the size of a human society? What's the maximum size it should be? It's 150 people. (laughs) Our brains can only handle connections with 150 people okay well colonial times not a big deal (laughs) you're probably in a little town or something where it's not much bigger than that or smaller than that okay well now we're in a much more complex society we're living in cities it's much more likely you're going to know 150 people now we have social media where you know everybody (laughs) now it's billions of social connections potentially brain's not wired to keep up with that much information so we start to make buckets of information mental call them kind of like heuristics or shortcuts in our brain so that we can get through any given day we we take a lot of information we put it into a little bucket and we quickly can sort information quickly that's why stereotypes come to be where it's like okay well I don't like this person, this kind of person. Now, every time I meet that kind of person, they go right in the, I don't like this person bucket. Never taking into account that individual where they're coming from, why maybe you even have those sorts of beliefs in the bucket. Really quick way to sort people. And so when you see somebody's Facebook page and they're shirtless chugging a beer and they made a stupid comment, you have a lot of information that you can now use to place that person into a bucket and they can do the same to you. It's like, oh, you're college educated, you're a liberal elite, into the bucket. Mm -hmm. And it's like that, unfortunately, makes it so our brain can get through the day because you still have to focus on your job, driving to work cooking food. There's a lot of stuff we have to process in any given day. So in order for us to get through it, we kind of streamline as much information as we can. We shouldn't be streamlining human interaction or people and putting them into those categories, particularly when those categories are harmful or hurtful or stop us from connecting or working together. But we have a society that is now much bigger than it ever has been because now we are more aware of everybody in it we ever had been before before it's you know as many people as you can ride on a horse to get to (laughs) Mm -hmm. or if you're going to talk to people you might say something crazy you might say something that could be harmful but the only people that are going to hear you say it are the people that are in shouting range imagine that limitation the limitation that the only people you can connect with are the people in shouting range now i can type 140 characters and i can hit a billion people within minutes, that's a level of power that we've ne- our brains are not wired to even comprehend. We can't comprehend a billion, we just can't. That's why the death toll for COVID is so discouraging, but it's also a number we can't understand. We haven't seen 350,000 people. So it's a number that's just too big for us to process fully, a billion people. That's a way for us to connect on a scale we've never been able to connect before, which should mean we're closer together than we ever have been. But unfortunately, what is, what's what's happening is we're, we're becoming more polarized and more further apart than we ever have been before. So that's the kind of work that we as scholars, but also as just citizens of the world, we gotta kind of figure out what does this technology mean to us? How is it gonna fit into our lives? How are we gonna use it? This technology is not set in stone and Twitter's is not gonna do anything to you if you're not using it, but it's now a part of our world, it's a part of our fabric. How can we tweak it to maximize those positives, minimize those negatives? And that's the kind of thing we as a people do all the time. How we use our phones, how we use our cars, how we use all the technology around us. We figure out how it works best for us. And when we do that, it stops being a technology to us and it becomes a thing to us. Oh, you're, you're sitting on a chair, I assume, right now. That chair is a piece of technology, but you don't think of it like that. Mm-hmm. You think of your microphone as technology. The computer you're recording on is technology, not your chair. Why? Chair's done more for you <laughs> than the, probably that microphone. It's one of my favorite technologies. A chair. <laughs> it's one of my favorite ones, but we don't think of it that way. It's just a thing because we figured out how it was going to work for us. We'd put them in rooms, and you would sit on it. We figured it out (laughs) now it's good to go it's not something that we're really processing on a daily basis anymore at some point our cell phone and all these other things are on that same trajectory where it's like you're not going to think about it as this high technology you're going to be thinking about it as just a thing that you always have on you and social media is going to kind of have to have that same reckoning with with our daily life if it's not benefiting us what is it doing It is benefiting us. We have research that shows it can connect people, it can help, but we also have research showing that it can hurt. How do we refine its use while also refining the technology itself so that eventually it fades into the background and we can use it safely and we can use it for our benefit that it will make our days better, it will make our lives better. That's the end goal It's just to figure it out. And right now it's developing so quick that we're just behind on figuring it out, it's mm-hmm. so what we call a sociological lag, where the technology has outpaced our ability to adapt to it. We went from knowing 150 people to knowing a billion in a very short period of time. Uh, we went from, oh well, you tried to call my landline and I wasn't home, so I'll see you when I see you. Like, maybe <laughs> just bump into you at the grocery store. Who knows? But yeah. so now you're reachable 24 hours a day, seven days a week. What does that do? we were still trying to figure that out but we know that there are pros and cons and hopefully we can figure out how to maximize those pros and minimize those cons that's good
0: all right well hey i've um, i've kept you for a while um before we close this out i'll just you know sort of leave the floor to you if you've got anything you want to say on your way out to everybody listening
1: Oh, well, well, first off, thank you so much for, for inviting me to, to chat with you and your audience. It's really, really cool stuff you've got going here. Um, and it's really exciting to, to have an opportunity to communicate uh, with you and, and your listeners, because one of the, the challenges that scholars like myself face is it's like, okay, well, we're finding out this stuff, but this doesn't matter if we're only talking to each other. Mm-hmm. Like, we want to talk to the people that ultimately also help fund this kind of research, like your taxpayer dollars, when you help go towards, you know, National Science Foundation grants and these kinds of things, that research isn't ours. It's supposed to be everybody's. And uh, a lot of the ways that I communicate with people on on the sort of boots on the ground level is via my teaching, where I try to impart these kinds of things to my students and, and the next generation of, of scholars and citizens. But having an opportunity to talk to people more broadly is is really important. And I, I appreciate any opportunity to do that. And I would impart by saying this situation, these technologies can sometimes seem overwhelming or discouraging or, or negative. And in some ways they are, and they can sometimes seem overwhelming, but it's okay. We've been through these changes before Uh, i remind people that socrates was very against writing said it would destroy our ability to remember things said it would destroy society we've been going through this cycle of new tech going to destroy the world many times we've gotten through it every single time you want to know how we know socrates said that because plato wrote it down (laughs) we're we're always going to go through these cycles the sky is going to fall it doesn't. We figure it out. We're good at figuring this kind of stuff out. If we can figure out how to make a virtual environment, we can figure out how to work it into our daily routine. Though <laughs> so it's just something that that takes some time and we'll get there. we'll figure this stuff out. So, stay positive and stay hopeful and contribute to the process. If the if a technology is not helping you in your life, change it. Change how you interact with it, change when you interact with it demand that the developers change it in a way that that makes it better for everybody and we have that ability we've done it many times before and we'll do it again whether it's social media or vr or whatever we'll figure this out we just need uh, some time so so stay positive <laughs> thanks again for for having me
0: yeah fantastic good words thank you so much for coming on and uh yeah hopefully in the future we'll get you on again that'd be really great i would love to all right okay. well you take care you too thank you bye bye all right so that was the episode with dr christopher ball i hope you enjoyed listening to it as much as i enjoyed making it uh, he was a great guest uh yeah and like i said at the end of the episode i really hope he's back again sometime because that was really really great stuff um so that's it for this episode we will see you next next time um i love y'all take care of each other Bye bye